Hi, and welcome to The Rock Podcast. We have the privilege tonight to hear from Pastor Bob Cole, who is a songwriter, worship leader, and personal friend of The Rock. For the next few Wednesdays, he will be sharing with us through the Book of Psalms. Let's join Bob now in tonight's Wednesday night study. Boy, I love doing this. This is really wonderful. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 27. That's what we're looking at tonight. And let's pray before we... uh, dive into this, okay? Lord, I am so grateful for this psalm. I am grateful for what you have done in my life because of the words that David wrote here. And my prayer, Lord, is that others would be set free like I was. I pray always, Lord, that our thinking would conform to your thinking. And we honestly don't know how off base we can be unless the Holy Spirit shows us, but you told us he would. So we're asking for that tonight, Lord. We're praying for your anointing on the teacher, your anointing upon the hearers. Can't wait to see what you have for us. Been pretty good so far. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. David is just one of my favorite guys in the Bible, and several reasons why. David was a man's man. He was the kind of man that other men would follow and risk their lives for. You remember the story of a couple of guys overheard David say when he was in exile that he would just love to have a drink of water from the spring inside of Jerusalem, which was under, you know, he was in exile from it and he wasn't allowed in. And they crawled on their bellies through a tunnel just to get David a drink of water. That's the kind of loyalty that David inspired. He was also a ladies' man. And sometimes that was good, and sometimes that wasn't so good. The most impressive thing to me about David, because he was not a straight-A student by any stretch of the imagination, but the most impressive thing to me is what God said about him. And God said, this is a man after my heart. And I can't possibly tell you how much that is the desire of my heart is that I would be that kind of man. And I'm not a straight-A student either. So David encourages me greatly. The Psalms that David wrote, and he didn't write all the Psalms, next week we're going to look at Psalm 50, which was written by Asaph, one of David's worship leaders. And we're going to look at what God really wants from us. So stay tuned for next week. But one of the things that makes David's psalms so meaningful is when you know when they were written and why they were written. And we don't, hi, Connie. And we, <laughs> I've stayed in her house for 10 days, and I haven't even got to say hi to her yet. <laughs> Busy lady. Where was I? <laughs> I asked the Lord to help me to not do that. So there you go. Not a straight-A student. This psalm was written at the end of David's life. In fact, it may be the, one of the last psalms that he wrote. And it's a testimony that David gives us of why 
he appears to be so fearless. You look at David from the very time he pops on the scene, he's wrestling lions and bears and his very first battle he ever fought when he was like 15 years old, he fought against a giant, a guy named Goliath, and the Hebrew pronunciation is quite humorous. It's Goliath, which doesn't sound nearly as scary, does it? Like Goliath and the three bears, you know, that's just what I always think of. So his very first battle, he fights against Goliath, um, and he appears to be so fearless, but if you read what he has to say during that period of time, you remember the story, you know, Philistines are coming against Israel, and they sent out their champion, Goliath, who was nine feet tall. That's two feet taller than Shaquille O'Neal, if you can even wrap your brain around that. He's not the tallest guy that ever lived. I've been to the British Museum, and there's a skeleton in the British Museum of a guy that was 11 and a half feet tall. There are still tribes in northern Africa where people regularly are eight to nine feet tall, still to this day. So he fight, he comes, basically he's bringing cheese sandwiches to his brother. He's too young to fight. They're on the front lines. Dad sends him, take some cheese sandwiches to your brothers, and he does. And while he's getting, you know, kind of doing the kid thing and looking at, he realizes that here's all of Israel's army over here. Here's all of the Philistine army over here. And they're all quaking in their boots. And there's one big, tall, bad dude standing out there. And he's just yelling Philistine cuss words. And he's defying the God of Israel. After a while, David walks up to the front line. And he says, are you guys going to put up with this? And they go, yeah. <laughs> you see how tall that guy is? He said, but can you hear what he's saying? He's slamming our God. Is anybody going to do anything about that? And they said, no. Even Saul, who was the tallest guy in all of Israel, was scared. So David walks out there, and Saul, or Goliath, Goliath, thought it was a joke. He thought they were trying to diss him in some way by sending out this runt. David was a runt. He was the runt of the litter, and he was just the kid. He said, yeah, you're big. Yeah, yeah, your sword's bigger than my entire body. But I tell you, you messed with the wrong God when you started slamming our God. And Goliath made his threats of, you know, I'm going to feed you the dogs. He says, no, dude, I'm going to feed you to the dogs because you're coming to me in all of your strength and your size, and I'm coming against you in the name of the living God and your dog meat. I'm cutting your head off, I'm feeding your body to the dogs, and he did. The last battle of David's life is the occasion, right after that battle, of this psalm. And the last battle of David's life, he's fighting another giant. And this giant is a relative of Goliath. And his name is Ishbibinab. Not to be confused with his cousin from Texas, Ish Billy Bob. So you, you, you don't want to get those two mixed up because they're, they're very sensitive about that. So here's Ish Bibinob, or if you want the Hebrew pronunciation, is Yish, Yish Vovenov, which, I don't know, sounds Russian to me. But So David, 
somewhere in his mid-80s, except for one noteworthy time in his life, he always went out in front of the army to fight against the enemies of God. One time he didn't do that, and that's when the whole Bathsheba thing happened. Worst thing David ever did. So here he is in his mid-80s. He's out. He can barely lift his sword. And he's, it's like, I am not scared of no stinking giant, you know. I whoop your paw, and I'll whoop you. And, but after a while, he's, you know, he's 85 years old. After a while, he couldn't even lift his sword. And so Abishai and a couple of the other guys came, and they dragged him off of the battlefield. They set him down. I personally think they tied him down. And they said, this is your last battle, David. You are too valuable to this country for us to risk you. Sorry, dude, you, you fought your last battle. And then Abishai went out and killed Ishbibinab. So here's a guy that looks pretty fearless, doesn't he? But if you read the Psalms, you realize David all the time talked about how scared he was and what he did about it. And that he went to the Lord, and that's how he conquered the fear problem. And um, some of us have dealt with paralyzing fear in our lives. I have. I had some really, really tragic, bad things happen to me as a very young child, and they just left their mark. I was afraid of the dark until I was in college. And that was because I was molested at a babysitter's house in an overnight stay when I was five years old. And, it's, and to me, the dark is where bad things happen. Bad stuff. The interesting thing to me, and the reason I was so excited about teaching this, is that it was some, the things that David said in this psalm set me free from fear. I still have moments of being a fraidy cat. I do. But it's not life-controlling like it used to be. So we get to hear David's own testimony I think if you look at this, you're going to see why he appears to be so fearless. Last week, I told you, by the way, if you came last week, thank you for coming back. <laughs> Didn't feel like I did a very good job last week, so thank you for coming back. You just make me feel so, so much better. David tells us what the secret of his courage is. Last week, I told you there's a difference between fearlessness and courage. Fearlessness means you don't have any fear. Courage means that even when you are afraid, you do it anyway. In fact, courage doesn't even kick in until you're afraid. My heroes, the heroes I have in my life, are people that it takes tremendous courage for them just to get up in the morning and live their lives. And they are my heroes. Are they scared? Yeah, they are. They're scared just about every minute of their lives. You know what? They do what God tells them to do anyway. That's a hero to me. So David tells us um, in all of the Psalms, no, I'm not fearless. He tells us on this. He said, you know what? There were times in my life where I would have completely despaired. I would have lost heart if I didn't have confidence that I would see the goodness of God while I'm still living. So he's not Superman. But he's a courageous man. So let's look at this. 
That was a long preamble. I'm not going to read it all the way through. I had them print it up on the uh, overhead as we go through. We're going to just take it in chunks. I'll read you the first four verses and we'll, uh, first three verses, and we'll look at that. I might ask you to underline things. I don't know if you do that. But words are really important. And please do not underestimate the value of a definite article. Like the. <laughs> he starts out with the definite article. The Lord. Not one of many lords. The one and only Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? The word strength Probably a better translation would be stronghold or refuge. When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, I thought something about that just sounds nasty to me. My enemies and my foes, they stumbled and fell. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Armies didn't encamp against him. At one point, 20,000 soldiers were hunting him down. So this is not an idle boast. And though war may rise against me, in this I will be confident. What does the word this refer to? It refers back to verse 1. So that's the, let's look at these first three verses. The Lord, the only Lord, is my light and my salvation. Twice he says, whom shall I fear? Of whom shall I be afraid? There, that's not rhetorical. I think there's an answer to that. The answer, if the Lord is your light and your salvation and your stronghold and the strength of your life, then really the only person you would ever need to be afraid of would be somebody that was bigger than God. And of course, there ain't nobody bigger than God, is there? We forget that, don't we? This person that's yelling at us, this letter that we get in the mail, this doctor's report we weren't expecting, these things look bigger than God. It's like if you, if you put a dime up close enough to your eye, it'll blot out the sun. And sometimes things are so big in our life that they dwarf God. David figured out. When David fought Goliath and when he fought Ishbibinab, it wasn't that he pretended they weren't giants. It wasn't that he didn't notice them. No, he saw them clearly. It's just that they weren't all that he saw. He saw the God that was his light and his salvation. Light, always in the Bible, is a picture of a guide through darkness or wisdom in confusion. And David said, that's you. That's the only true God. That's my light my salvation. The Hebrew word for salvation is fun. I'll tell it to you, and you can check me out on these things. It's the word yesha, Y-E-S-H-A, and it's a colorful word. It means to rescue from a crushing place and set someone in a spacious place. Remember the old Get Smart TV shows, old people? <laughs> Remember when Max and 99 got thrown in the trash compactor room? Well, the, this word yesha is what happens when someone pushes the off button and snatches you out of there and sets you in the, out in the park. 
It's a, it's a fabulous word, but the best thing about it is it's the root word of Jesus' name, Yeshua. Yeshua is salvation, and Yeshua, Jesus' name, means God is our salvation. By the way, if you want to just add up, just do a little homework and go through and add up every place, if you can find a Hebrew dictionary, every place in the Bible that Yeshua is, or every place in Psalms that Yeshua is mentioned, and write the word Jesus in, it becomes quite, quite thrilling. Whom shall I be afraid? Well, anybody bigger than God. The word strength in verse 1 uh, as I said, a stronghold or refuge. I always write in all my Bibles the words safe place. David figured out after all of the long period of time in his life where he was running for his life, every hiding place he ever found was found out. And he came to realize, you know what? I only have one safe place, and that's my God. That's my safe place. And... uh I said this on Sunday up in Ukiah. Faith is the opposite of self-protection. And as long as I'm trying to protect myself, I'm at least diluting, if not completely canceling out my, my faith and my trust in God. So what God's done for me is he's put me in situations where I couldn't protect myself. Yeah, I ran to hide, and then somebody found my hiding place. And you come to realize after a while, like David did, that really your only safe place is the Lord, and he never changes. When the wicked came against me um, to eat up my flesh, it's an, it, that's another colorful phrase in Hebrew. When it's used figuratively, when it's used literally, it means devour you. When it's used figuratively, it's the word for slander which means speaking evil about someone. You know that whole nursery rhyme thing? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Not true. You can destroy people with slander. You can ruin relationships. You can blow apart families. Churches have been destroyed by slander. It's a serious deal. David suffered both kinds of the figurative and the literal um, occurrence of this phrase. And he said, here's what I found out. The wicked came against me to slander me or to eat me up. All my enemies and my foes, they fell. They stumbled and fell. By the way, how do you know that unless they come against you? You can know it in theory, See, the way I think is, oh, God, make all the bad people go away. Make them stop saying naughty things, and then I'll be okay. God said, you know what? No, you won't, because you'll be worried about what if one of them breaks through the picket line? You know, what if one of them gets to you? So what God does is he holds on to you, and he just lets all hell break loose. It's like fire. You want God to put out all the fires, and God says, that won't cure you of fire, fear of fire. Let's just let the fire rage. I'll walk you through a bunch of fires, and after a while, you'll stop being afraid. That's the testimony of David's life, mixing metaphors. He's just saying, look, I figured this out. This is why at 85 years old and at 15 years old, I wasn't scared of no stinking giant. Not because I'm anything, but I'm, I'm serving the living God.
Though an army encamp against me, though war may rise against me, in this I will be confident. In what? That the Lord is my light and my salvation. He's my stronghold. Boy, that's worth knowing, folks. I've accused God of not paying attention in my life. I've, I've, one time in my life, there was a guy who was really causing me so much harm that I, he was bigger than God to me. And God says, well, let's let him drive the bus for a while. I thought, you kidding? And God said, yeah, you're so scared of him. Let's just let him drive and I'll prove to you he's not bigger than me. I have to admit, I hate it when he does that. But the end result of it is you see who your God is. You know what? He gets bigger, doesn't he? And all these other people you've been so afraid of, you really pull it away from your eyeball and you realize, that's a dime. That isn't bigger than the sun. Worth knowing. I think verse 4 and verse 5 and 6, actually, but I think verse 4 especially is one of the reasons why God said, this is a man after my heart. David says, one thing I have desired of the Lord, and that will I seek. And it's a, in the verb in Hebrew is continuous action. That will I constantly seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all of the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Let's just pick that apart. I almost sang, was going to sing that song tonight because it fits really well, but I only got four songs, and so it got bumped. One thing have I desired of the Lord, and I constantly seek after it, that I may dwell. That is a fat word. Underline that if you underline in your Bible. I'll give you the Hebrew word if you want to check me out. It's the word yashav, Y-A-S-H-A. V. It's the same word in Psalm 23, verse 6 at the end where he says, and I will dwell, yashav, in the house of the Lord forever. Why is that a fat word? Because it's one of the Hebrew words for dwelling, for living with somebody. But this is the word for living with somebody because you're married to them. So it's a word of intimacy, in relationship. It's not, David's not saying, you know, I, I'm constantly seeking after that I could just be a servant in God's household. Although he did say at one time, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in God's house than a king someplace else. That was priority. But David knew the Lord well enough that God had way bigger plans than that David would just be a servant. You know what? He has big plans for you, too. He has committed himself to be married to you forever, for eternity. Intimacy, fellowship, starting the day you're born again and then just gets better after you ditch this stinking body that you're living in. It just gets better and closer. David said, that's what I'm seeking after. And I think, God, well, God knows our hearts. I wrote in my notes, there's lots of reasons why people go to church. Being a pastor for 40 years, you just see all kinds of reasons. Some people go to church because they're scared not to. 
you know, the guilt, fear thing. Some people go to church as bribery. Oh, please, Lord, help me to bite my tongue. I'm not going to talk about St. Jude or any of that stuff. There are some people that figure if I kiss up to God and I'm really nice to God, then he'll do stuff for me, and that's why they show up at church. Like, God's going to go, wow. (laughs) Twice in one week. (laughs) Bring the blessing truck. Let's just dump some blessing on these folks. In the early days of Calvary Chapel, back when Annie and I went to Calvary Chapel in 1970, there were people who saw a church with 10,000 people in it and thought, business contacts. So they went to church just to make good business contacts. And then there's some of us, we come because we want to be around other people that are crazy in love with Jesus like we are. I used to drive three hours each way just to be with people like that when I first moved to the upper right-hand corner of the country, and there just weren't very many Christians. And then God blessed me by giving me just the coolest people in that whole state to be their pastor. And then I could, I could hardly wait to get there. I could hardly wait to get there for every service, and we would hang out until they kicked us out of the building. Why? Because we had lots of cool stuff in common. Actually, a church is the healthiest when you don't have anything in common except Jesus, and you still love each other. You know what that's like, right? I can see in your faces. <laughs> so David says, I just want to be in God's house. I want to be around him. I want to be intimate in fellowship with him, and I want to be around all of his people. To behold the beauty of the Lord, that phrase in Scripture is always talking about face-to-face. Now remember, On David's side of the cross, nobody but the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies, into God's undiluted presence. Nobody except the high priest, and he could only do that once a year. We have it so much better, don't we? I can be in intimate fellowship with Jesus all day long if I want to. Neener, neener, neener. I have him all to myself. Well, wait, but he was with me all day. See, that's the cool thing. I had a dream about that one time. I dreamt that I died, and it was like turning the channel on the TV, and all of a sudden there's a new scene happening. And I was standing in this broad plain. It was actually, this was years before Lord of the Rings came out, but it reminded me a lot of the scene at the end in the last book of the Lord of the Rings, the, re- the return of the king. And I'm on this broad plain, and there's this gleaming city up in the mountains, and I'm walking across this plain. Early in the morning, the dew is fresh. It's going to be a beautiful day. And I'm looking down this long line as far as I can see, and as far as I can see that one, I see Pastor Chuck and my grandpa and uh, all kinds of people, and we're all walking towards the city. And pretty soon on the horizon, I saw this figure running towards me. And after a while, it, you know, I could see the hair blowing out behind it, and I could see he was hang, sort of hanging onto the hem of his robe so he could run faster, and I realized, that's Jesus. So casually, I just started running. 
So I knew I could beat Pastor Chuck. I was pretty sure I was pretty sure I could beat Billy Graham, but I just wanted to be the first guy to grab Jesus. And you know what? In my dreams, I'm handsome. And <laughs> hey, they're my dreams. I'm handsome and I can dunk a basketball. So I won. I got to Jesus first. And I grabbed onto him, and I, he smelled like wood smoke and wood shavings. And when I'm hanging on to him, he had muscles in his shoulders, and he's laughing. And he's like, you know, how were you just laughing so hard because you're just so happy? And he's laughing. And after a while, I thought, oh, good Lord, there's a line of a million people behind me waiting to sit on Santa Claus's lap, you know, waiting to <laughs> hug Jesus. So I did the limp dish rag thing where you just kind of limp out thinking, okay, the hug's over. And he, he would not stop. So finally, I just kind of pushed him away. And he said, what's wrong? And I said, you know what? I just, I got to give somebody else a chance. And then he really started laughing. And he says, you don't get it, son. I'm doing this with every one of them right now. And my whole view of heaven totally changed from that dream. I realized rather than being one of a billion people sitting out there waiting for a chance to talk with Jesus, I get them all to myself. I had them all to myself today. Did you? So you think it's going to be worse in heaven? It's going to be way, way better. I, you know, I didn't plan on telling that story. Annie was probably praying that I would tell that story. She loves that story. But that's what, the way David's thinking. He said, look, I get them all to myself, not just because I'm the king. I had them all to myself when I was a sheep herder as a teenager. And God says, don't you love that guy? Just that guy gets it. He totally understands God's heart. I love that. So he gives us a because. every time. Verse 5, every time you see the word for, it's the same as saying because. He said, I've desired this one thing. I constantly seek after it. I wanted intimacy with the Lord all the days of my life. Of course, the good news is we get it even after we check out, after we shuffle off this mortal coil, as Shakespeare would say. Because, verse 5, in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion, his shelter. In the secret place of his tabernacle, he shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted above my enemies all around me. Therefore, because I finally have the God view, therefore I will offer sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. I have a couple of notes on being high on a rock and have your head lifted above your enemies. Three words. Being high upon a rock is safety and stability. And interestingly, once again, you go back to the word for salvation, yasha. It means to take somebody out of crushing pressure and lift them out and set them on a safe place. It's just such a... I, I tried to, when I was pastoring, I tried to tell my people to not get caught in the habit of Christian cliches that you don't know what the words mean. Look the words up. So whenever it came to the word saved, are you saved, I always used the word rescued. And of course, some folks, now they never said saved ever again. They always said rescued, but that's what this word yasha means. And that's what David is describing. 
God pulling me out of the battle, set me up on the rock where it's stable, I have good footing, and I'm safe. And then when your head is lifted above your enemies, the word for that is perspective. Have you ever been so surrounded by your circumstances or you've had so many people screaming at you, you just can't think straight? You can't get, a, you cannot get perspective. What God does is he lifts us up and gives us the God view, and then you realize you're right on the edge of the battle and you're close, this closer to safety than you ever thought. That's supposedly why we come here, to get the God view of things, to get perspective. And David said, that's why I want to hang out with you, Lord. That's why I want to be as close to you as I can be all the days of my life, because I know what you'll do when I'm in trouble. You'll rescue me. I'm with you, David. Don't think I'm missing anything here. I might have to go a little bit over because I told that dream story. Isn't that a great dream, though? And you know what? It, it was so sensual in that I could smell the smells and hear the sounds. I could hear Jesus laughing. And, uh, wow. I've begged him to give me another one of those dreams. I've whined, actually. <laughs> God doesn't respond well to whining, though I've, <laughs> Lord knows I've tried. Verse 7. 7 through 10, let's just take that chunk. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. And I wrote in my margins, he will. Have mercy also upon me and answer me. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. And I wrote in the margins, he won't. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not leave me or forsake me, O God of my salvation. When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. I want to talk about these things. I think I can do this. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, he will. Have mercy on me and answer me, he will. How do we know that? Because he said, well, yeah. By experience, we know it, but we know it because he said so. And it's not false advertising. Just let me read you one of my all-time favorite verses in my Amplified Bible. It's Hebrews 13, 5 and a half. And you totally miss it in English. In English, it says, I will never leave you or forsake you. But in Greek, there is a triple negative. It is some of the fattest words in the Greek language, and the verb tense is um, emphatic. So let me read it to you. Because David says here, Oh, Lord, don't leave me or forsake me. And I have in my margins, read Hebrews 13, 5 and a half. It's the scripture I gave you, angel, when I first met you. God himself has said, I will not in any way fail you, nor give you up, nor leave you without support. I will not, I will not, I will not in any degree leave you helpless, nor forsake, nor let you down, nor relax my hold on you. Assuredly not. 
There was a time in my life where things looked so out of control. I had my Bible open to that scripture when I went to sleep at night so that when I woke up in a cold sweat, I could look right there, and there it is. This is him. This is what God says. Hebrews 13, five and a half. Boy, if you don't have an Amplified Bible, you, you know, find online that scripture and just cut and paste that scripture and hold it in front of your face because English is really watered down. It's a very emphatic scripture. Triple negative. I will not. I will not. I will. Just in case you forgot, just thank you. In case you think I'm kidding, I will not relax my hold upon you. So David said, Lord, don't do that. Please don't relax your hold. And I wrote, he won't, because he said so. You have been my help, O God of my salvation. Verse 10, i got to talk about this. In Isaiah 49, it says a similar thing. In Isaiah, Isaiah such great poetry in Hebrew. Isaiah was a poet. What a, he's one of the first guys I want to meet to heaven after I'm done with Jesus. That'll take, you know, a couple hundred thousand years, but in Isaiah 49 it says, is it possible that a mother could forget the child that she's nursing? And Isaiah said, well, he's quoting God, I mean, God's speaking through Isaiah, and God says, well, even if she does, I won't forget you. On my fourth birthday, my brother was three years old. My brother was two and a half years old. And my sister, Connie, who some of you know, was 11 months old. On my fourth birthday, my dad gave my mom some money to go downtown and buy me a birthday cake because she hadn't made one. And she bought a bus ticket instead and left and never came back. And that leaves a mark. And the first time, you know what, and you can, you can bury stuff like I buried the, I had no memories until my 50s of that abuse, that sexual abuse by the babysitter. And I, this wasn't in the front of my mind for, I'm going to say most of my life, but I, I never felt secure. When somebody would say they love me, I, I, in my mind I'm thinking, yeah, you say so, but just wait till it's a really good day and you're going to disappear just like my mom did. I'm not saying this to elicit sympathy. I'm telling you that when I read that scripture in Isaiah, I couldn't stop sobbing all day. Because God says, yeah, you know, your mom, she had issues. She wasn't a normal mom, but I want you to tell you something, son. I will never leave you. I won't forsake you. And David says, you know, it's possible if you have a dysfunctional family, they're not going to do what they're supposed to do, what even genetics, even the laws of nature say they should do. Maybe they'll bail out on you. You know who won't bail out on you? Your heavenly father. You have the perfect father now, regardless of what your earthly father was like. When I had, uh, I had, used to have a kitty. He's in heaven now, waiting for me. I had him for 15 years. And he has this kitty watch, this kitty chronograph that knew exactly when it was time to go to bed. And that was whenever he thought it was time to go to bed. 
and you know, I, I don't own a television. I haven't owned a television for many decades. And I, I read in the evening, and I, was, I would be sitting there in my old colonial house in front of the fire reading, and my kitty would walk in like, okay, we're done, we're ready. And the minute I closed my book and I started to stand up, my kitty would run up the stairs to my bedroom. He would jump up on the nightstand next to the bed and go like this. And he would sit there like that. If I was putting my jammies on or doing whatever, he would sit there like that until I picked him up. And I would, I, I've never, ever heard of a cat doing that. And when I picked him up, he'd put his little kitty arms around me and bury his kitty nose in my beard. I maybe thought I was his mom or something. <laughs> and I'd give him daddy snuggles, and when he had enough daddy snuggles, then he would, you know, he would jump down and he would lay down on the bed and he'd fall asleep and start snoring. <laughs> like, okay, all's right with the world. Daddy picked me up. Why did I tell you that story? Well, I miss my kitty for one reason. But the phrase in the New King James that I had printed up there, when my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will take care of me. That's one word in Hebrew. It's the word asaf, A-C-A-P-H. And it means to gather up and enfold. And that's, so that's what I always think of when I say, okay, Whoever bails out on me, I know one being in the universe with the greatest heart of love that isn't going to just let me sit there. He's going to pick me up. He's going to gather me up and enfold me in his embrace. And I have to tell you, folks, there were times that that was the only thing that kept me from jumping off a bridge. Because without fail, he has always proven to be true. And, of course, David had his moments, didn't he? He had his moments when he couldn't trust anybody but God, and God came through. So these are not lightweight words. This is David's experience. I love that story. I miss my kitty boy. So did you have a dysfunctional family? Yeah. You did. Did you have a really dysfunctional family? Did, were you abandoned by your mother like I was? Were you abandoned by a father? See, that's all changed. Now, you have a new family. You have a father who invented the father heart and who invented the mother heart. And he will never abandon you. And if they do, let him pick you up in his arms. Ask him to. When these memories all came back to me in my 50s, I just, I cried. I cried and cried, and I don't know what it is about that catharsis that made me feel better. But it's just so, so amazing. Maybe that's happening for some of you tonight. God led me to these scriptures. I didn't know they were there. And I realized, okay, I'm going to cling to this promise like a life preserver. Because if I don't, I'll drown. God says, go for it. I said it. I always keep my word. Let me prove myself to you. Folks, please don't just withdraw in yourself. I did that for years. Reach out to him. Let him be the father that he wants to be. Be the kitty that sits on the nightstand and goes like this. I let a 
ballerina to the Lord one time. She was a great lady. And I, I took her to, uh, the day she got saved, I took her to Calvary Chapel in Seattle. And there's, you know, a couple thousand people there. And when worship time came, I thought she had not been in a church since she was a little tiny girl. And I thought, what's she going to do? Oh, I hope nobody does anything weird. And, and we're singing this worship song, and I wasn't even worshiping. I was kind of looking out of the corner of my eyes. And I looked over, and she was just like this. And tears were streaming down her face. And I, on the way home, I said, hey, this is your first time in church. What was up with that? And she said, well, I'm a dancer, Bob. I know what that means. And I said, well, what does that mean to you? And she says, that means daddy picked me up. And I said, do you want him to do that? And she said, well, I asked him to. I said, let's pray. And I got the chance to lead her to the Lord. I wasn't going to tell that story either. <laughs> okay, I may go five minutes over. I may not. Let's look at the last four verses. I think here's another reason why David was a man after God's heart. He's the king when he's writing this. He's had a long history of military victories. They had to drag him off the battlefield at 85 years old. I love that picture. I'm not scared of no stinking giant. Let me at him. Let me at him. No? David, you sit there. Joab, you sit on him. You're not fighting anymore. You're too valuable to this country. Listen to what David says in these uh, last couple of verses. Teach me your way, O Lord. Boy, that's hard for men. It really is. And I'm a man, so I'm not just, I mean, it's just hard for men to be that humble to say, I don't know how to do this. I think I do. I have the way I've always done it. David's 85 years old when he's writing this. And he said, okay, teach me your way. Lead me in a smooth path because of my enemies. The Amplified Bible says, lead me in a plain and even path. I'm old. I don't see so good. Just make it real plain. You lead me. You teach me. You lead me. I'll follow I'll learn. That humility is so rare. By the way, I left something out in verse 8. Thank you, Jesus, for showing me. I missed it. You said to me, seek my face, and my heart says, Lord, your face will I seek. Both of those verbs in Hebrew speak of an immediate response. Lord, the minute you tell me, seek your face, I'm going to seek your face immediately. So thank you, Lord. That was a good one. I'm going to miss that. The Quakers have a saying, by the way. That's my heritage religiously. Going back, way back to my grandmother, her, her parents were Quakers. Quakers have a saying, the best time to obey is immediately. Before you let in the reasoner. See, that's me. I know I'm supposed to obey, but then I analyze. I am so hyper-analytical, it's disgusting. So just obey. Just obey immediately. Don't sit and try to analyze everything. Okay, that's a free little sermon. You just rewind and stick it back there at verse 8. Teach me, lead me, make the path plain. I don't see so well. 
Verse 12, do not deliver me to the will of my adversaries. And I wrote in, he won't. I have to tell you this, folks. It may look like it sometimes. I'm almost 70. And I have seen a few times in my life where it looked exactly like the bad guys were winning. But you know what? They weren't. And the story is not over till he says it's over. So that's a free little sermon, no charge for that. Do not deliver me to the will of my adversaries, even if, though it looks like it, he is not going to do it. And I love verse 13. You miss it in, if you have an NIV, I feel sorry for you on a couple of these verses. The verb tenses are odd. The old NIV, the new NIV that corrected it, so I'm grateful for that because I had an NIV study Bible for 40 years. Um, but some of the older translations, some of the newer translations leave out the phrase, I would have lost heart or I would have despaired. The King James says, I would have fainted unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. So here's David, the giant killer. David, the guy who's, who's won battles against hundreds of thousands of Israel's enemies. End of his life saying, you know what? I'm not Superman. I would have totally tanked out. I would have done a face plant if I had not believed that I was going to see God's goodness in the land of the living. I'm so glad he said that. I wrote in my Bible, me too. That's why we're studying this tonight. Because you might have not, not have known that these scriptures were here, just like I didn't know at one time. So now you know where to go. Here's what I found for a few years after the whole, all of the nasty stuff came to light. I would run to this psalm and I would just read it through over and over. I just kept reading it. I don't have to do that. I have it memorized and some of these things are foundation stones in my life. Let's close with verse 14. I think I can do this. You'll see the word wait in here twice. It's one of about eight Hebrew words that are translated wait or hope. And all the Hebrew words that are translated wait all talk about waiting with expectation. Not waiting, wondering what's going to happen, but waiting, expecting God to do something. I'll give you this Hebrew word. I call it the rope word. The word is kava. It's spelled Q-A-V-A-H, kava. And I call it the rope word because it's a word that speaks of a, in sailor's term, we call it a hawser, a huge, thick rope that is triple braided with other rope that's braided with other strands that are braided. So it's like a triple braided one of those big, thick hawsers that they tie huge boats to docks with. It's a colorful word, and that's what David is using for the word wait. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage. He will strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Wind yourself around him. Weave yourself in with him, and don't budge. 
I'm reading right now for about the 20th time Andrew Murray's book, Waiting on God. I heartily recommend it. I tried to find it at the Christian bookstore. It wasn't there. You can find it online. It's 31 studies of all the scriptures that talk about waiting on God, and this is one of them. Anybody under pressure or panicked that decides that they're going to wait on God and weave themselves in with him no matter what, that takes courage. And remember, courage doesn't mean you're not afraid. Courage means that even though you are afraid, you do it anyway. I promise you at some time in your life, you're going to need courage to wait on God. You're going to hear the Mission Impossible music. You're going to hear that in, your, in the background, and you're going to see the clock ticking down. And do you remember the Rockford Files? Remember that old show with James Garner? Remember when he's trying to break in somewhere, picking the lock, and the bad guys are coming, he goes, work the lock, Jim, work the lock, Jim. It's like, shut all that stuff out and just concentrate on the job before you. That's what waiting on God is going to take sometimes. It's going to look like that is the stupidest thing to do. For many years, I would seize the helm and wreck the ship because I was just afraid to trust God to steer. I, you know what? I used to try things that I knew wouldn't even work just because that was easier than to just sit there and wait for God to do something. So don't be like me, okay? It took me a long time to learn these things. Waiting on God doesn't mean you don't do anything. It just means you don't do anything unless he tells you to do something. That takes courage. That also takes earplugs, because you're going to get lots of contrary advice from well-meaning people who are not the Lord. They might know the Lord. You know what? Jesus' own family told him it was a lousy career move to go to Jerusalem. <laughs> I take great comfort in that. Of course, they all changed their mind later. Wait the rope word, wait on the Lord, be of good courage. And this is a very emphatic statement. He shall strengthen your heart. Somebody, some Baptist in here, tell me what Isaiah 40, 31 says. Yes, God bless you. And even if you're not a Baptist, that was good to remember that. <laughs> They that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. I will tell you that will, that will not seem logical under some conditions. You feel like I'm just waiting on the Lord and my strength is going to dissipate. And God says, no, if it's happening, you're doing it wrong. If you're losing all your strength, you're doing it wrong. You're not drawing close to me. You're not weaving yourself together like that kava word, the rope word. Because when you do that, you will... Your strength will be renewed. Count on it. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Let's close in prayer, and then I want to sing that song. They that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. Probably a lot of you know that. Pretend you're 
thousand voice black choir, okay, when we'll sing that. But let's pray. Thank you for these words, Lord. Thank you that these are sustaining things when the bad guy is rattling his sword and scaring us to death. Thank you that you proved this to David. We can read the historical record and see that the people like him who believe this look to be fearless. They definitely have courage. So, Lord, do that for us. You know what scaredy cats we are. You know, some of us have really good reason to be afraid of the dark. Some of us have really good reason to feel afraid of being abandoned. I am so grateful for these promises that you say, there's no reason to be afraid if I'm your stronghold. Where you say that even if your parents abandon you, I won't. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Write those things deep in our heart, Lord, we pray. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvarytherock.org. 